Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you happen to be, petrified puppy hounds. I'm Rob Sercha. I'm Devin Shepard. And I'm David B. Jacobs. And we are Cadaver Dogs. Welcome, welcome to another exciting episode of Cadaver Dogs Podcast. And today I am truly excited because I have to thank our very good friends at Dead in a Minute for suggesting and recommending these next two duo of movies that we're going to cover today. Uh, it's a big spread again. One is from this very year, which I'm so excited about because... Like, 2020, I feel like, didn't have a lot of great horror movies, but 2021 seems to be a really good year for horror. I said 2020 had great horror movies. It had a few, but I feel like 2021 is just like, one, two, three, four, the next movie. I almost said the name of it. I can't do that. There was at least one good horror movie in 2020, just saying. I think 2020 had a... Mine. Had mine. Had mine. (laughs) Yeah, that one was definitely great. (laughs) That was good. A Nightmare Awakes. It's now streaming on Shudder. Yes. But wasn't that technically 2021 for people who just watched it on Shudder? And it premiered in 2020, but yeah, it came out on Shudder in 21. Mm. Yeah. It's the same with this movie. So. Yeah. Actually, I think this movie premiered in 2019. Did it? The Ameri- the American release was in 2021. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, it took fucking forever. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, while you guys are out there searching dead in a minute because they're awesome, I want you guys also to plug us at Cadaver Dogs Pod. That's Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also reach us at cadaverdogspod at gmail.com if you want to send us your suggestions, and maybe we'll cover your movies. So while you're watching this with your grandma or your grandpa, please email us at cadaverdogspodcast, not cadaverdogspod at gmail.com again that's cadaverdogspodcast at gmail.com i know it's confusing because our instagram account is different but you know there's like a character limit or something on all something like <laughs> so you know they just murder the character limit and we won't have this problem i will second that yes for sure <laughs> yeah and uh tweet about us i like tweets um i mean they'd probably be yelps because you guys are puppies but you get the idea oh my god oh my god killing this metaphor right now rob killing it <laughs> I am. I am. I'm killing it. God, it's like I'm begging for more. They're going to start asking me to give Paul. Uh, oh, my Oh my God. <laughs> oh, my God. This on, is throw, awful. Seriously, throw me a bone. <laughs> David, get us out of here. So without further ado, we're going to get to the meat of this podcast. David B. Jacobs is going to give us the rundown on our first film that came out this very year. One correction, uh, we're recording this in 2021. The episode's going to come out in 2022. But, regardless. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's weird. After Katie is banned from working in public hospitals, she goes into the private sector and begins to look over ailing dancer Amanda Cole. But all is not as it seems. You see, Katie had a religious awakening, probably because she has personally spoken with God. Changing her name to Maud, she regularly experiences intense otherworldly presences. No, it's not an orgasm, you pervert. And she determines to save Amanda's soul from homosexuality and godlessness. But when Amanda fires her for this interference, Maud's mental state deteriorates out of control until she finally returns to save Amanda, who it turns out is possessed by the devil. Maud kills the demon, gaining her own angel wings in the process then goes out to the beach to light herself a fire and ascend to heaven. Oh, fuck, she's burning alive. Uh, so maybe that wasn't God. This is Saint Maud, the most recent film we've covered to date, released by A24 and directed by Rose Glass. Wow, you got a completely different interpretation than I do just from that summary. Really? Yeah. No way. 
Yeah, that's so weird. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely hit some points there, but I think the first thing that I want to um, talk about here is, do you guys believe that God was actually talking to her in, in the context of the story, or is she making it up? No, she's bonkers. She is. There's no God. In fact, uh, I think it's her own voice speaking in Welsh when she hears God. It is. And uh, it, the movie did a good job of, in the beginning at least, confusing me slightly with the ambiguity because Amanda, um, the her client, pretends to feel God when they're near each other to just because mm-hmm. she's bored and dying and she just kind of wants to relate to somebody. And I feel like it was kind of this ruse. Like Amanda's not a very nice character. She's very manipulative. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I, I mean, she didn't make it up. Uh, she's so, so ma- making it up's the wrong choice of words there. Uh, but it, it's she she's she's not talking to God at all. Um, there is one theory that I've heard that she wasn't that she wasn't talking to God, but she was talking to the devil. Mm. And there is imagery in the movie to support that. I mean the. The whatever it is takes on the form of a freaking beetle, which is like, that's not God, that's the devil. I I think I don't mm. know why I associate beetles with the devil, but I think that's a devil thing. Maybe just because it's a bug that you're like, ah, yes, the devil. That's an interesting interpretation. I think like I was thinking that like halfway through, I was like, oh, this isn't really God. This is the devil. Um, mainly from the moment when she's in the apartment and I think the fireworks are going off outside and she levitates. And that is obviously very much um, a throwback to to some possession movies. Um, we don't really see that elsewhere. But then at the, at the same time, what I found so unique and like refreshing about this movie is that um, it could have been a possession movie by God in a way. Um, we don't get, usually get to see that. We usually only see devil possession, but it has to be able to work the other way too, no? Um, I mean, if God is speaking to her through her, um, then God is within her. I don't know. I found it really interesting. I, at, at the end, no, I don't believe that God was really speaking to her at any point, mainly because we do end the movie with the flash of her burning alive. And that's the last image of the film is that reality is different from what she imagines it to be. Hmm. Well, I think there is the idea of possession by the Holy Spirit is prevalent in some Christian circles. Oh, for sure. I just meant in movie dumb. Yeah, in Movie Dumb, it is kind of interesting. I also, there's this idea of like stigmata that the movie plays with a little bit. And I don't know if either of you have seen the movie Stigmata, but the idea is like the phenomenon of just developing the the injuries of Christ through divine manifestation of some kind. And like, it's a divine punishment, but it's also a privilege of sorts. And there's this idea of like punishment and privilege through God. Like you're only worthy for the spirit by hurting yourself you know there's a lot of self-flagellation going on yeah it's interesting it reminds me of uh oh crap what movie is that is it um contact have you guys seen contact yeah like forever ago with jodie foster yeah with jodie foster and matthew mcconaughey or i guess a better one might be uh uh da vinci code isn't there like a character in da vinci code who is um uh flails himself to be closer to god yeah i think there's also (laughs) in uh pill Pillars of the Earth. You guys ever see that TV show? It was based on a really uh, famous book series. The main bad guy in that engages in self-flagellation constantly while he's being manipulative. He's like a bishop for the church or something. Yeah. It's kind of a common trope. And I 
the way this movie does it, I think, is particularly effective because it's just very creepy. It reminds me in part of Black Swan, just the idea of this this kind of woman being caught up in um, her own delusion. Yeah. You know, I, I think delusions are self-manifested. So like making it up, I guess, is not the right turn of phrase because she's not making it up for an end goal. Mm-hmm. She's self-manifesting it yeah. through whatever delusion or mental problem. Yeah, she's not lying, although her mind might be lying to herself in a weird kind of way. For sure. But this, just even the like really closeness of the uh, the lens uh, on, and the, the sound design reminds me almost of like an Aronofsky movie. A lot of this movie kind of felt like an Aronofsky movie. It's like it had a really nice crescendo and the tempo kept going up and up and there's a lot of like anxiety inducing stuff. And it was just so similar to Black Swan, if you ask me. But at the same time, I feel like it was also such a quiet film. Um, and without having the loudness that is usually associated with Aronofsky. And I think it was, yes, it was a lot softer, which I very, very much enjoyed. Yes. When you describe it that way, it does feel like the female Aronofsky. I don't want to spoil pie. Pie is great. Um, but there's a, there, there is a religious connection in that movie as well is all that I'm going to say about it. Um, that the man becomes somewhat obsessed with pie is very good. Yeah. And that one's more ambiguous as to whether or not it's real. Even The Evil Within is kind of similar in a way. There's a lot of films about people succumbing to their madness. Um, I just think this movie lacks the ambiguity of something like possibly The Evil Within or Daniel Isn't Real. Right. Yeah. And I liked that about it, that it wasn't ambiguous and it was very clear in what it wanted to be. Yes. It was also just a very straightforward movie. I mean, other than that one Mm -hmm. scene where Amanda lies and pretends that she's felt God which um, is very interesting that they take it. Yes, very much so. In, in kind of like an orgasmic sense. It seems like that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to say that the, that the presence of God is sexual. And I think Amanda picks up on that. <laughs> I've heard that. I can, I can see that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it's funny. So the director, Rose Glass, um, she called those moments in the film Godgasms. Okay. um and she actually didn't mean for them to be sexual i think when i was viewing it i saw it as sexual um and i agree with you guys and then i was reading an interview with her in um vulture and she said you know the whole purpose of that was she wanted to display that rose sorry wanted to display that Maud was um getting pleasure from her conversations with god and she found the best way to show it was in a physical sense and it just kind of became these orgasmic experiences without without the intent that they that it was sexual it's interesting though because it's it's pleasurable but it's also completely uncontrollable that at any moment she sort of can just be taken by this sudden spontaneous orgasm like that it's it's almost like a seizure in some way it's like a pleasurable seizure Mm. right it it is and it stems a lot from like meditation and reaching this place of like pure body and mind um I want to say like elevation of pleasure um, that she talks with a lot of people about and they described it as an orgasm, but in a more ethereal sense. I, I think it's interesting to juxtapose it with the actual sex she has in the film. She's disassociated with the person she's with. It's very mechanical. There is no kind of like mental coupling. And by showing how much more pleasurable the theological orgasm is as opposed to the or the lack yeah. of the physical. Totally. Yeah. She literally gets raped. I- intercourse. Uh, but yeah, even even before the rape, when she's sleeping with a guy, uh, you, you can tell it, there's it, 
it's it's very aggressive and it's mechanical and, and it's devoid it's hollow so it, it's saying something that about her relationships with people that's lacking in that she's having much difficulty connecting with people and, and again amanda is the most insightful character of the movie if you ask me because when uh maud goes to her before the climactic scene she says you must be the most lonely woman in the world lonely girl in the world and i think she's right i think this maud has a lot of trouble connecting with people and she's using the voice of god as a way of filling that void that coupled with her mental illness whatever it may be um exasperates this condition she yeah. has I, I mean i i guess the the other sexual thing that you would connect it to potentially would be uh saint mary who maud says is her saint which i don't know what that means but i guess it's a thing um, <laughs> that mary the virgin allegedly had an a, a sexual affair with god and was therefore impregnated oh while still being a virgin well, i thought that was mary magdalene was her necklace it actually was. Is that not Virgin? Wait, that's not the Virgin no. Mary. No, it's... Yeah, so Mary Magdalene... There's two Marys? Yes, so Mary Magdalene was... Um, uh, many people thought she was a prostitute, and I actually was reading... I also thought that until I did a little research, and she wasn't. But she was basically the most faithful and one of the first apostles of Jesus, mm. and the one that um, he came to right after the resurrection. Look at this, guys. I, I learned religion. Um yeah. Yay. Yay. And she uh she's very she's known to be like the most devoted apostle. Um so I think I see some correlation there. She also is uh David, you said you didn't know my saint. Everyone has like in like that the faith they have like a saint that they choose to to pray to. Um that is like the patron saint of XYZ, whatever they feel most connected to. Um How do you choose? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> whichever one you connect to i don't know yeah i guess it depends so mary magdalene is the patron saint of like many things for some it, she's the patron saint of like hairdressers and like shoemakers mm -hmm. or something um so maybe that's how they choose but she's also the patron saint of like uh contemplative life uh penitent sinners mm -hmm. women sexual temptation converts mm -hmm. so like basically everything that maude is <laughs> mm-hmm yeah, yeah. There's definitely a connection yeah. between I mean, uh, Maud's sexual tendencies and the idea of Mary Magdalene as a prostitute. Um, which, yeah, I, I mean, a lot of the religious text is up to controversy on what actually happened, if any of it happened, historical evidence, and a lot of the stories conflict with one another. Uh, yeah, the common reading is that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, and Jesus saved her, and she was kind of possessed with something, and he he cured her. Okay. So she she gave up her life as a prostitute after following Jesus. Pretty much. She was also possessed by a demon in some of the stories. And he exercised her. So you could also compare her to uh, Amanda then? Uh, more to Maud, who is, you could say, possessed. But yeah, I guess so. But I mean that she wants to save Amanda, who is also very sexually promiscuous. Yes. Uh, she is not a prostitute, but she hires prostitutes. Uh, she is also shown to be possessed by a demon at one point in the movie. Do you think it's fair to call her girlfriend a prostitute, per se? Or is that yeah. a paid friend? It's a little different. I was going to push back against that a little bit. A, I don't think she's promiscuous. We only see her have sex with one person. Um, and Okay, fair. In Maud's eyes, she is. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that's that's the other thing that I yeah. wanted to push against in your summary as well. But we can get to that. Um, but yeah, I think I agree with you, Rob, that it's this weird... It's a weird gray zone of like, we don't know if she's a prostitute or if this is just something that 
is like a situation with the two of them. She could be a sugar baby. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a oh, lot of yeah. different interpretations there that I'm I don't sorry. think that they necessarily like hone in on too much or explain too much. And and I'm only speaking like colloquially because if you want to get down to like brass tacks, sugar babies basically are prostitutes. Like they get paid for something. It's just a different type of relationship. It's a mm. more specific type of relationship. A call girl per se. I think it's not because prostitution is more business like. It's it, prostitution is more of this is a business. This is how you make. I, it. I think it depends on who you're seeing. Probably. Right. And that's why it fits all under the umbrella of sex worker. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I, don't, I wouldn't refer to sugar babies as sex workers. They definitely are. So you brought it up, so I wanted to ask about this. David, why do you think Maude um, wanted to save Amanda from her homosexuality? Promiscuity. Um, I think Maude is very judgmental of Amanda uh, being gay. That That is one of the things that we are shown she tries to get carol away from uh from from amanda gentle suggestion surprisingly which obviously does not work because why would that work why why do you think she wasn't let me say put it that way what what that i mean she says she says to carol i don't care that it's that you are sleeping with each other i don't care that you're a woman i don't care that it's two women sleeping together um and actually the director what i love so much is the director does come out and she says it was a big thing for me that we um, go against the ideas that, you know, the audience, these preconceived ideas that the audience has that because she is a pious woman and faithful to her God, that she's against homosexuality. There are so many people out there who don't think that way. And it was important for me to show that in this film. And so she does have Maude say, I have no issue with this. Hmm. Yeah. I think it's also a problem with maybe, uh, comparing everything that Maud does to the actual text because she makes a point of saying that her relationship with God is particularly uh, personal and she's not really going off the uh, a strict reading of the text. In a lot of ways, she's just kind of making it up. She's definitely not going off a strict reading of the text, but I... She thinks it's direct communication. I think that in the movie, I definitely read it as her being uh, homophobic. I thought that... I, I did not believe her. She was being defensive. And just saying that she has no problem with it, but I thought it was very clear that she did. Hmm. Well, Amanda um, agrees with or you. Else, or else she wouldn't have tried to get Carol away. I don't know. I believe in the reason that she gave Carol was that she's distracting Amanda from her faith and from what she needs to be doing right now, which is, you know, overall the bigger picture. You know, Maude is very, very determined and very, very passionate about her faith and about saving Amanda and she sees Amanda as distracted and she doesn't understand, you know, we look at Maude's life and she completely is devoted to living a simple life where she just devotes her life to God. Whereas Amanda is not, she's doing a million other things and shows that she wants to have some sort of relationship with God, but isn't as devoted as I totally lost my mm. thought there. No, no, I, I, I understand you. I just, I don't even know if Amanda ever really wants a relationship with God. I kind of feel like, She's playing yeah, she games doesn't. with Maud, and I think that becomes relatively clear towards the end. Um, that I, although she is playing games with Maud, she can still get something out of this fake relationship of doing yoga together and praying and whatnot. Like there's something there for her because she's sitting around bored, dying. Totally, um, I I love. Yeah, I agree with you. I think she's making fun of her. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Um, I'll add one more wrinkle into this that I also read Maud as uh, having affections for Amanda herself. Mm. Well, Amanda um, says that too. 
Amanda wonders if she's a yep, bigot Amanda or says jealous. That too. Yeah. I I don't think yep. I don't think Maud has any kind of sexual attraction to anyone except for God at this at this point in her life. Mm, that even when she goes out to the bar, which is such an odd scene, that that's pure that's pure rebellion. I don't I don't think there's that's her fishing for some sort of human connection. And that's why she calls Joy, who seems like a very nice woman actually. And Joy goes to yeah. try to help her at the end. And you, and you know, Joy can tell that Maud is nuts. <laughs> there's something bad is going to happen right then and there. And she's like, I don't know what to do about the situation. I got to go to work. <laughs> okay, so you just touched on like three different points that I want to cover. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Cover it. Tell me. Um, Same. So, uh, the, with, I, I disagree about her not feeling sexual attraction toward others. I think she does, but I think she feels guilty about it because she doesn't believe she's supposed to, which is also why I read her as I think she is. Uh, either gay or bi, and also homophobic, because she feels guilty about her uh, attractions toward Amanda. Um, so in response to Amanda, I think she is both a bigot and jealous. It's interesting because <laughs> I definitely um, I definitely felt that way too um, upon my first viewing. Um, there's little key moments that I saw. Uh, you know, obviously there's the scene where they're both experiencing, quote-unquote, experiencing God together, and Amanda reaches towards Maude. Yeah. Um, Amanda sends... Maude a note with just an X for kisses, not XO hugs. It was very, it was like love Amanda X, which is very um, sexual. And then, or uh, flirty, I guess. It was very flirty. But then, um, again, reading the interview with the director, um, she did not intend this at all. And there are reasons, and I, I want to ask you to as well, but I think um, for me, rewatching it, I was like, oh, if the if if the godgasms weren't so sexual, I don't know if I would read that scene as as homosexual at all. And then mm. also it's Amanda pushing on Maud, not Maud necessarily accepting or rejecting. Mm. And then um so and then what the director said was she thinks it's this hard this thing that people have an issue with of two women connecting on screen and seeing them as two heterosexual women instead of like, they have to push this like homosexual agenda onto their relationship. I, I actually yes. completely agree with just about everything you said there. And I also think it's very important that she speaks to God as if it's a male during that scene. Although there is sexual tension, it's, it's not sexual between the two of them. It's them sexual with this right uh, masculine character who's supposed to be invading them. And then it's, it so is Amanda, Amanda trying to kind of, come on to Maud, right? And I think she does come on to Maud a little yeah, bit. Yeah, Amanda reaches out and grabs Maud's hand. Yeah. And then Maud's reaction to that is that she's going to save Amanda. I, I, And it's not in a way where like, oh, I have to save you. It's something like, oh, this is my mission. I found it. I'm mm -hmm. so happy. Uh, to me, that is her accepting Amanda's embrace. And also, I know what you're saying, that Rose Glass not intend for it to be sexual, but I think it very much is and i don't think that we should take what a director says as gospel i totally agree but i think there is something to be said here where she says okay and i want to correct myself earlier because amanda is not heterosexual um so i think there's something to be said about how do we read yeah. a film between a queer woman and a straight well we don't know i guess between two women one of them being queer um which is explicit in the film and why are we putting these ideas that are not explicitly said? Like, why are we filling in everything about Maude, about being her being um, 
homosexual, about her being queer, about her being repressed, about her rejecting everything, when the text is not really, I, I, it's interesting. I would say it's not really up for interpretation, but obviously it is because we all had different readings of the mm-hmm. film. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't read Maud as homosexual, and I, I don't think there's much to indicate that. I, I think it's fair to speculate, of course. Um, we'll see in our next movie, there is some speculation that's similar. Uh, it, it's a little bit more ambiguous, I think, in that case than in this case. Um, but but that is an interesting idea that so often it's almost become a trope that when two women are alone together on screen, there's this in, uh, expectation of se- of sexual tension between the two. And in this movie, there obviously is, but I think it's all coming from Amanda and the other sexuality is towards God and this comparison to like a Jesus-like figure of someone whose suffering is validated through the eyes of God. Yeah. And it's their mission to raise other people up to this other standard and to sacrifice for them, right? Although I, I would argue that Maud is extremely narcissistic. She's totally blind to everything, yeah. She even adds on to her pain because it's it's her mission to save everyone else. You know, she's the center of this universe. And it, it's I think that's important because as much as she thinks of herself as this kind of um, benevolent figure, as soon as there's any pushback, her reaction is extreme violence. And that doesn't speak benevolence to me. It, it is tragic. The whole thing is very tragic. I mean, what I found really beautiful and, and well done with this film um, is... I mean, we keep saying that she's mentally ill, but I think what we we go on that journey with her of what leads her to that point, mm-hmm. and we see everything that she's suffering, this loneliness, this gr- traumatic event that she um, experienced with practically killing her patient, obviously not on purpose, um, before Amanda, when she was a nurse at the hospital. Can I ask you something about that? Yeah. Do either of you know what happened there? I was... I, I couldn't quite piece together exactly what happened. Did she, you have an idea, Devin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's actually based on something that actually happened, which is creepy as hell. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah, it's a true story of this nurse um, who was treating a patient who had um, gotten surgery in his chest, and he had a cardiac arrest, and she was doing uh, chest uh, compressions to restart his heart. And because his rib cage was already broken from the surgery, her hands went through him and crushed everything inside of him and she killed him. And so that scene that we see, the moments of that scene actually is what happened in real life, but also is what happened in the story of Maude. That makes sense. I was wondering, because like you see that she crushed his chest. I'm like, how the fuck did she crush his chest? That makes sense. That's terrifying. Um, Yeah, I wasn't sure if that was just like delusion. And it's like, yeah, no wonder she was scarred and turned to God. Like, um, Do you know in... The real story, because obviously in the movie, she, like, fully is given the blame for that, um, whether or not. I mean, I I guess arguably, like, maybe she should have known, but also, like, what the fuck are you supposed to do? He's, you need to resuscitate him. Like, it's, did, Wait, I yeah, did she get banned? I, I don't know. Yeah. Because Joy tells her it's not her fault. And she says, oh, I didn't know you were still practicing medicine. As in, w- was she banned from nursing because of that? Or did she leave she based on the mental stress she had in reaction but then to the they, breakdown? They would not let her be a hospice nurse. Exactly. After if they banned her. Yeah, I don't think she could have been a medical aide after that if she was banned from nursing and medicine. 
Maybe. I mean, it also might have just been that she was fired from that specific hospital as well. Right. Uh, do you think she was fired, though? I don't even know if she was fired if she left voluntarily. I thought... I, I'm not, I don't know to remember the specific lines now, but I thought it was that Joy was suggesting that she had been uh, fired, that it was not voluntary. It's kind of confusing because it does come off as a little bit accusatory when she first meets Joy. A little bit. Although yes. Joy is trying to be nice. And, and you can tell Joy doesn't actually necessarily mean to be accusatory, but she comes off as accusatory. When she's like, oh, yes. and she implies, I didn't know you were allowed to still practice medicine. But then she comes back and apologizes and said, you know, it wasn't your fault. You didn't. That could have happened to anybody, and it's tragic. Which I interpret as Joy kind of like... I interpret it that Joy kind of does think it's her fault, uh, which might not be fair, and I think Joy might even be somewhat aware that it's not fair. Right. But I, I think that's that's why her phrases are toned that way, is because I don't think she... I think she does blame Maud. Yeah, it's interesting because the the pictures of, that we get of Maud's life before when she was Katie, um, though limited, it does seem like she was not in a good place. I mean, her conversations mm -hmm. with Joy, uh, I think she says to Joy, I didn't think you liked me. Obviously, they never hung out. Um, mm -hmm. I think Joy does call her lonely. Um, so she was even lonely and just an outsider before any mm -hmm. of this happened. Also, um, during yeah. the rape scene, uh, or right after, it, it's the same scene, um, the John, I don't know what his, what his name is. Oh, yeah. He, he mentions he that her. she'd been around the bar a lot and with a lot of other guys. So it seems like the comparison to her and Mary Magdalene is apt. Well, I don't... She seemed like yeah. a kind of wild woman in that way. Oh, uh, wild, okay. Unless you really don't think Mary, Mary, Mary Magdalene... Did, that, yeah. did those things. But I think in general, that's the idea at least people have. And I think it's the idea the movie's playing with. Yes, it's definitely strongly implied that Maude has a long sexual history. Which I like. I like that we see this very religious girl not being afraid of sex and like being okay with that whole side. I mean, obviously we only see the sex during the, um, like during her downfall when she's falling from, from grace, but it shows that, you know, she did at once have this life and that, hmm. um, it isn't something that she is against necessarily. How do you guys actually interpret that sequence? Because I was a little confused by it even like, I, I mean, obviously it is, I, I like you describing it as a folk from grace, but what, what's her, literal motivation in those scenes to uh pick up a guy that just jack him off and not even have intercourse with him herself or to pick up another random guy who knocked over her drink like what what do you think is her actual motivation there i thought she was going for a human connection and it's this thing that she has a lot of trouble with she's a constant outsider and she's difficult to connecting with people and it's this raw physicality is the way she tries to compensate yeah, I totally agree. But then when she jerks that guy off, she immediately walks away. Exactly. She has trouble with these things. She has trouble with these things. She tries to, but she, whatever her problems mm. are, whatever reasoning, she she has no friends. She lives alone. She's completely isolated. Yeah. I, no, I just want to say like that I agree. And I think beyond just, you know, the closeness to somebody, I think there's also a gratification. I mean, she isn't having these godgasms anymore and she needs something to make her feel better and we see so many women in real life or people in general just like going turning to alcohol or sex to like fill these voids and to get like little moments of self-gratification um and so yeah she jerks him off he comes great job done gratified what else are you going to do you really have to talk to him <laughs> now like what else is there to have it she doesn't value anyone's input other than her own 
which which she interprets as gods. It's completely self-absorbed delusional narcissism. She she can't allow anyone else into her bubble to affect bubble and to affect her world. That's why whenever someone does affect her world, she reacts violently. Yeah, because it threatens her illusion of what the world is to her. Right. So I have a weird question about the isolation of this, and I think that this movie can be read as very anti-religious, but noted, she's going rogue. Like she is not involved with the church. And the movie's about a person who has problems with isolation and is described as the most lonely woman in the world. Like, is that saying that organized religion actually has a kind of value? And that maybe if we engage with that, that you can uh, go in a healthier direction? And that these kind of like isolationist ideas that maybe some of the saints in the past have had, you know, the guy who lived in the tower and used to send his divine poop down. If any of her viewers know who that is, please comment on our Twitter because I, I couldn't remember. <laughs> um, there's this kind of like communal uh, value to organized religion, like going to church and meeting people. You do things on Sundays. You create a network. And she's completely lacking this network. And her whole life has become, you know, devastating and tragic and, and violent and uh I can't think of words right now because I'm so hungover. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's a really interesting question. And I, I see an answer of it when Amanda gives her the book um, by William Blake. I think he's an artist and it's it's his drawings. It's his religious drawings. And he is against organized religion because he believes it is antagonist to a true spiritual life. And so I agree with you, Rob. I don't think that like the life that she lives is necessarily tied to a religion. I think it's just a spiritual life that she chooses these religious figures to to join on her spiritual mm -hmm. journey. But I think it is very much like mind, body, and soul, which is so much of this film is is all about the body, obviously about the mind, and obviously about mm -hmm. the soul as well. And I think she's just, she's living on that higher plane. Yeah, yeah. So so to clarify a little bit about William Blank, he was he was a 18th into 19th century uh, English poet, painter, and printmaker. And he's the guy who painted the image of the Red Dragon in the Red Dragon movies, if you guys had seen that. Oh, cool. Yeah. Nice. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you never saw Red Dragon? That's a Hannibal Lecter movie, right? Yeah. I never saw oh, it. Oh, dude, insane. It's good. Right, we'll have to cover it, yeah. Anyway, it's a fantastic kind of image. I think it's called, like, The Beast, and it's just awesome. Check it out if you get the chance. Uh, going back to the, the question, though, um, I agree that I don't think she is part of any specific organized religion, although, I mean, obviously she is Christian. She has a saint. She refers to herself as a saint. Um, you guys just loaded a bunch of New Testament shit on me that I had never heard of before. So, <laughs> obviously she is Christian and going off Christianity text. Um, but she is not part of the actual organized religion of Christianity. She is not Catholic. She is not Protestant. She is her very much her own thing, which I think is also part of her being a saint. That She's creating sort of a new branch of her own. Mm -hmm. Even when we hear God's voice, quote-unquote, it is her own voice. It is uh, Welsh, not Latin or anything Oh, like I that. love this. Keep going. I think the movie is clearly anti-religion. Or at least anti-organized religion? Or anti-religion in total? What Rob is suggesting is interesting. That is the movie against religion as a whole or only unorganized religion? And I think that in order for it to be against only unorganized religion, um, Amanda or a new character would have to be a Catholic mm -hmm. to foil that. Mm. But we don't have that foil, so I don't think that it's really making a statement about organized religion specifically. I think it's just talking about religion as a whole. 
and uses her lack of organization as a way of making it more generalized. Because it's not a critique of the church, it's a critique of religion itself. Yeah. Of saying that these beliefs are poisonous and can corrupt someone. I mean, even the final image of her burning herself is like, you know, it is it is something that we have seen before. It is something that uh, people do as acts of protest as they burn themselves. Mm-hmm. And the movie is showing that it does not raise her to enlightenment. It, it just burns her to death. It gives her a violent, brutal death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The, the burning yourself is uh, did happen with like Tibetan uh, monks uh, protesting. Yeah, uh, Tibetan monks. It's happened in other religions too, though, right? I think it also happened in Vietnam with Vietnamese monks. Uh, it happened mm-hmm. in the Arab Spring and kind of set off the Arab Spring. A shopkeeper lit himself on fire. So, yeah. And also Richard Pryor lit yeah. himself on fire, since we're speaking about it. Uh, did you guys know that? Richard Pryor lit himself on fire, yeah. which was no. insane. He, he got put out of fire, but wow. <laughs> he lit himself on fire. got fucked up. You guys didn't know that? No. It's crazy. It happened long before any of us were born. Yeah. So I, I, I do I do think I agree with you, but I think it's a point of contention that this movie is very critical of self-isolation and how these kinds of religious delusions can lead to insane behavior, right? And very dangerous behavior. And, yes. and that is typical of like saintliness, that a lot of saints would perform miracles in isolation. Um, I mean, you can just go on the internet and you can find like 10... 10 different uh, miracles. I mean, there was a guy who supposedly carried his own head through the streets of Paris. Ah, disgusting. Yeah, that's cool. They should make a movie out of that. That would be fucking wild, man. Um, There is a movie out of that. It's called Reanimator. Lost. Was he in Paris? <laughs> <laughs> that was cool. He also went down on a girl when he was doing that, which was wild. <laughs> in Reanimator or the real guy? I mean, Reanimator. Reanimator. <laughs> did the real guy also do that uh i think he was religious so no <laughs> but maybe um, he was french he was french <laughs> okay i really love this conversation but i think it is time to start on our second film before we do that however here is a break for our sponsors Okay, pups, I'm excited to move on to our next movie, but first, I'd like to ask you once again to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CadaverDogsPod. And while you're at it, if you're enjoying the show, the best way to help us grow is by tweeting about us or otherwise sharing us with your friends. Lastly, if you have a podcast or horror-related product you'd like to promote in this space right here, shoot us an email at CadaverDogsPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, pups. Thanks for sticking with us through that uh, commercial break. I hope you have come back from your doggy bowls and are ready for our next film. Rolling us out is Devin Shepard. The artist Johan Berg disappeared some years ago without a trace from his home. His wife Alma recounts the days leading up to the disappearance as the basis of our second film, The Hour of the Wolf by Ingmar Bergman. Alma and Johan moved to a remote island. Johan is a celebrated artist who has become uninspired, frustrated, and depressed. He cannot sleep. The island was meant to serve as a rehabilitation for him and his art, but the isolation becomes too great, eventually causing friction in the relationship and in their minds. The couple finds a group of decrepit bourgeois who live in the castle on the hill. Think grey gardens and wherever the heck they are. The bourgeois group toys with the couple for fun, playing mind tricks and trying to force them to separate. Their most convincing of games bringing Johan's ex, Veronica, to the island. It's then that Johan finally breaks, shooting Alma and running back to Veronica, only to find she's just as much a part of the game as the others. 
hopeless Johan runs into the woods and disappears at the hands of the bourgeois. Alma continues to live on the isle, questioning what brought her and Johan to this fate, and ultimately bringing the story to Ingmar Bergman himself. Uh, that is to say, that is how the film is presented uh, as a true tale. It is not a true tale, obviously, but Ingmar is kind of a character. It's really cool. Uh, so Alma is speaking directly to the camera, uh, who's presumably the viewer, but actually is Ingmar. Is it Ingmar or Ingmar? I always get it wrong. I call him Bergyman. Great. We'll call him Bergyman. Uh, another uh, interesting tidbit is the uh, director of photography or the cinematographer of this movie is Sven Niekvist, who is awesome. And he did Sleepless in Seattle. And he's won Oscars and other big awards, I believe. Maybe not Oscar, but other giant awards. Fantastic, like, cutting-edge DP. Does a lot of really cool camera tricks. And unfortunately, we watched this film on YouTube. Uh, I'm not positive it will still be on YouTube at the time you guys listen to this, but you should check it out and maybe you'll get to watch for free. It's very much worth your watch, I think. And uh, it has fantastic visuals. But if you get the chance, watch it on Criterion Collection or whatever because you'll probably get better quality. I feel like there, there's a lot to discuss in this movie. It is very vague and experimental and uh, a movie by uh, Mr. Bergyman. So the first question that I think we need to just address is do you guys think the ghosts or whatever they are are real or in his head okay same question as saint Maud. so in short yes they're real oh they are real they are manifestations of his psychosis but not just his psychosis of the psychosis of the marriage because there's a really important line in this movie that i'm going to read to you and i think it's my favorite line of the entire film almost speaking to johan and she says you once you said once what you liked about me was that God made me in one piece, that I had whole thoughts and feelings. And I think what he's speaking to is that she was a very individualistic person. But what this movie's saying is that often within relationships, we tend to rely on each other so much, we start becoming like one another. And they've both adapted each other's delusions, which have kind of spawned from Johan and have infected Alma. So I think through this infectious process, they've also infected reality in a way. So I think the demons or the flesh eaters, as he calls them, are actually real because they have real life influence on the world. So you're looking at it in a similar way to the brood. Yes, sort of. But the brood's a little bit more literal about the manifestations of her hatreds. I think this is also a delusion of the marriage. So you could look at it as the entire marriage is is delusional, that it's all created Mm -hmm. this kind of, uh, uh, what's the word, metaphorical nightmare. That's so interesting, and I, for the most part, I do agree with you. Um, it, is, it is really interesting that, I guess, they are real because they are manifestations, but they are physically there. That's that's very interesting. Um, the, the one thing that I have a different idea about, um, but also for the same reasons and the same, uh, the same details that you brought up, I don't think that it's mm-hmm. Johan's visions. I think it's Alma's. Johan, yes, Johan created these characters. They are the drawings that he shows her in the beginning. But she is the one that brings them to life. She is the first one to Mm. see one of these characters. Um, She is, because she says that she has whole thoughts, it's her actually bringing those characters to life as whole beings. Um, And then, you know, a thing that I was questioning this whole entire time, too, was like, why do we start the way that we start with Alma telling the story? Why is this Alma telling the story? We only have her accounts of the story. Yeah, we have his diary, but she brought the diary to 
Bergyman and <laughs> you could call Bergman her husband. I know, I know, I like Bergyman better. And yeah, her husband's an artist. It might he may be having like these thoughts, but they just might be creative scribblings. But she is the one that is manifesting the story, and these are her words, and these are her memories, and these are her experiences that we're seeing. When he shows him the drawings, he does say that he's been seeing these creatures, right? He does say it, but the first time the audience sees it, it's is with her. It's with all my belief speaking to that old woman. Yeah. Yeah, to the lady with a hat. Yeah, I believe she says she's like 217, 216. She goes, oh, just kidding. Actually, 76. <laughs> which is very... Did she say 216? 216, yeah. Yeah, 217 is The Shining. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Which, this movie has a lot of parallels to. Uh, 216, by the way, the reason I found it interesting because it's a perfect square. Or a perfect cube? A perfect cube, I think. This movie does have a lot of uh, resemblances to The Shining. Um, in that it's both about an artist or a writer and his wife and or son. I mean, they're both about these characters going into isolation and slowly unraveling. The ghosts may or may not be real in both stories, um, as the man just becomes more and more abusive and uh, breaking from reality. Mm. And in both of them, he's kind of already there. I mean the end scene at the end of Hour of the Wolf with the uh the the necrophilia scene when he goes and Veronica is dead on the table and he goes to kiss her and that she springs to life uh made me think of the old woman in the shower in The Shining. Talk about a great scene that I I, I like I like how you described it as a necrophilia scene because it really feels like he's uh uncovering a, an autopsy table. That that's when the movie really hits its like fever pitch. When he's going through his own, um, it's like the degradation of his value system and, and how he feels that to be validated as an artist, he must suffer and then must be humiliated in front of everyone else. I don't know, it's so strange. It's such a strange movie. He even whores himself off and kisses an old lady's foot at one point. I thought it was going to go further than that. And I think it's implied. It's really when he breaks away from Alma that the fever pitch hits its high. Yes, I, I think so. Um, because... Yeah. He, he's unsupported, right? That really great essay you shared. Spoke of marriage as kind of an archway with two pillars. An essay by rightwalldarkroom.com. It's so it's so fascinating. I'm like reading this and like, oh, okay, I understand the movie now. Mm. I understand aspects <laughs> of the movie through that essay. and Yes, I don't understand the movie, but I understand it more. Yeah, a, a movie this um, metaphorical and this vague in certain scenes... I think need be open to interpretation because I think yes. in a way it's like someone's ego like splayed open and their fears. Yeah. But then it's also nested in a series of different unreliable narratives, narrators. I mean, there's Alma who's unreliable. Then there's the diary itself that's unreliable. And then there's Johan's delusions, which are unreliable. Totally. But then they're also through the, through the vector of being spoken to a director who's portraying it. So I, I think there's kind of like four or five, narrations going on so to kind of piece and piece out what is true and what is not is almost besides the point it, it's, it's the metaphor yeah. and like the meaning and I, and I think the meaning is meant to be interpreted in different ways depending on who watches it to an extent i, I agree totally with you. agree and to answer my own question of whether or not the ghosts are real i'm really on the fence with it uh <laughs> while watching the movie i never questioned that they were real at any point until the very end mm. when Alma's final monologue she goes 
I'm thinking, oh, they both are experiencing it, so it must be real. Then the end, Alma goes, oh, but we're, we've become the same person. And if we become the same person, then wouldn't I experience the same delusions as him? Mm -hmm. Or he experiencing the same ones as her? Or that. That essay by Brightwell Dark Room, uh, the writer of it has himself had uh, a psychotic break in the past. And when he watched the movie several times through all these different lenses at different stages in his life, and deeply connected first with uh, Max Mancito's character, with Berg, hmm. um, and his psychotic break. Then he watched it years later, and it made him realize how terrible he was to his girlfriend mm. in that time. Mm -hmm. Then he watched it years after that and realized that even when looking at it through the lens of him being terrible to his girlfriend, he was still denying her her own sense of agency. Mm -hmm. And then in that final time, he went to her, and uh, he, he was talking about how he finally got it, and I'm going to read this because it's so interesting. He says, I have this theory that every love story is really a horror story. The thought has been percolating as I mulled over these new revelations spurred by Hour of the Wolf. Uh, I think the happiest ending to any love story is the old couple in Titanic lying in bed together while the ship sinks. They had a long life together, and they never have to live without each other. And then he says, I was so absorbed in my theory that it took me a moment to notice her appalled expression. Personally, she replied with enviable serenity, I would rather live a few years without you than go peacefully than drown. That, that reminds me of the Right to Die Act in Oregon, of old couples dying together. No. It just it reminds me of that. I think it's only happened a few times that couples actually orchestrated it to where they both died at the same time. Because there's the series of criteria you need to meet by being terminally ill and having X number of days to live, etc., etc., to be eligible for the right to die, which is where um, lethal medication is given to you for yourself to administer. So by yourself, self-administration could be like, literally, they hook it up and you click the button, right? That feels so messed up well yeah well there's no uh physician assisted suicide in the u.s you need to go to scandinavia yeah. is it scandinavia somewhere in uh, canada like Hol i this think it's movie... like holland or sweden or somewhere i mean if it's scandinavia then this movie came out of, out of sweden so mm -hmm. i think it is in sweden sorry if that's wrong i should know this i've read about it's it canada i mean you guys might disagree maybe you don't feel the movie is really speaking to this but i think that is something that is heavily in the movie that alma is obsessed with having this not obsessed well kind of she wants their love to be so absolute that they become literally the same person and experience the same thoughts i don't know if the movie is portraying that the movie might be portraying that as toxic i'm not sure mm -hmm. what do you guys I don't think? know if she necessarily wants does she say that she wants that or does she just say i think she says she, says she, wants, she wants that because I, I obviously she tells that story of of that happening with couples that have lived. Oh, I think she does say, she does say that she wants to live a long life with him. Yeah. And have the same mm -hmm. wrinkly faces. Yeah. You're right. You're right. You're right. Um, yeah. That's a great monologue, by the way, when she says that. Oh my God. It's so beautiful. But I mean, yeah, it's toxic, but I also think the situation is toxic and unique in its own way. It is. Um, I mean, she's there completely for him as much as we know. Um, I mean, she's doing everything and he's, doing art and she's living a lonely life. There's a beautiful moment that I can relate to so much. Uh, he comes back home from whatever he does in his daytime. I think he just goes outside and paints around the Island 
and she's so excited to see him. And like some people I think can read that as like, she's so in love with him, but also can be read as like, she literally hasn't seen a fucking person probably like she's alone there. And Mm. she's just so excited to like be able to be with somebody else at this moment. Maybe, I don't know. We it's so Mm. much is up for interpretation, but I think there's a difference between like, is she madly in love with him and wants all of that? Or is she also just in a situation where she needs it a little bit more because she doesn't have anything else right now. I, I think it's definitely both. And, um, it is definitely very important that their isolation is self-made and it's temporary. They, they're on holiday on, on, yeah. a, on a supposedly isolated island. So another reason why the demons or the flesh eaters, whatever they are, the ghosts, um, if they're manifestations, they're, they're not supposed to be on the island. They're supposed mm-hmm. to be alone on this island. So these people shouldn't be there. There's not supposed to be an inhabited castle. I, I think one of the more really interesting points of this movie is that um, conflict between the two characters of one who wants the marriage to become its own entity versus the other one who really values his own uh, personhood and individuality in kind of like a narcissistic way. He, He makes a clown of his own suffering, but he finds an extreme value in that individuality so that the marriage itself is an affront to his artistic ability. Mm -hmm. He wants it to be on display as himself, his own thing so much so that he uh, validates his own jealousy and suffering. And and then he thanks the the chorus of demons watching him in that uh, necrophilia scene. I love how you call it that. Um, and, And then thanks them for that grandiose humiliation. So, and, and I think it's a real fear, a, a fear of losing yourself to a relationship. And I, I know you haven't seen Persona, yeah. but that's a similar theme in Persona. David hasn't seen Persona, guys. Yeah. yeah, I saw it years ago. I don't remember it well enough to have an intelligent conversation about it, but I do remember thinking it was fantastic. I give it three bones. <laughs> How many bones to get Persona, Rob? Uh, I, I mean, I, it's, I, have, I haven't seen it in like, 16 or 17 <laughs> years probably but I, I do remember a lot of it and i remember you know on the edge of my seat it, it's a masterpiece for a reason it's it's probably a four bone movie i i can't mm. i can't reliably rate it right now i haven't seen it in <laughs> yeah, so long definitely it's not, it's not fair. i i'm an unreliable narrator uh but i think i think just going back to your point i think it's a really in- interesting interpretation um question because this is a line that stuck with me through the film almost, mm-hmm. almost as at the very beginning he didn't want the baby like he didn't want to bring in a third to their mm-hmm. relationship so i was wondering what you guys think about mm. that that line well there's a lot of hesitance with like his union in the marriage i think you can think of a artistic creation as a kind of birthing of of your mind and i i would think johan borg is vehemently jealous of that birthing of his mind there's also the probably it might be the scariest scene of the movie when he kills the young boy and he murders him. Yeah, it is. And now there's a lot of different ways you could read this. Uh, David has a very interesting one in particular. I don't agree with the one that I presented you with. It's just one that I saw. Yeah, but the, the more I think about it, you got to talk about it because I think I might sort of. I don't, I'm not sure. You it's do? It's so complicated. The, the way I see it is either a way of him like killing off kind of his innocence mm. because they picked the boy who looked like him. It, it, it seemed like he was only killing off his childhood self. Like that was the last the point of no return mm. and it was also if mm. you think of it in terms of him rejecting a family it's kind of a way of him like murdering mm. off the idea of uh copulation and that the guilt from that murder is why he doesn't 
deserve he doesn't he feels like he doesn't deserve happiness in fact he, he deserves happiness so little that he even uh, explains his own art in in futile ways and that's his way of dealing with his narcissism which he clearly has i think that is so fucking interesting i i actually love that i especially love the idea that this is the son that they could have had together is so interesting and he just the sun is running up and it's clinging to him and he just like throws the sun down and very violently kills him. It, it is an extremely violent scene. And when he pushes the kid down into the water and the kid rises up again, I, I, that's when I knew this was a horror movie. Yeah. I, I mean, oh, yeah. I, I think Nobody. there were other, there was a lot of points leaning towards it before then. And it also, it, it remind, I get a lot of uh, vibes of like mother in particular when they're at the uh, party and there's a lot of like patronizing um, small humiliations happening. That is very indicative of the party scenes in mother uh, that building anxiety. I see that. Um, It's, it's a, it's like a moral, I don't want to say highbrow, but uh, you know, it's, it's a pinky, it's pinky out conversation. (laughs) The way the child scene is shot actually reminded me of pie. He uses similar tricks Mm -hmm. where, I forget whether it's because uh, it's a shot on film, obviously. So you either underexpose the footage and then overdevelop it, or vice versa, and that creates that extreme contrast feel of it. And in this movie, it's almost becomes a silent film for those parts. That aside from the music, there's no sound effects or anything. Um, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, did you have an idea of that scene, Devin? No, I wanted to ask about yours because you alluded to it, and I have no idea what you're talking about. Your interpretation. I'm going to let Rob do it because I actually don't really like that interpretation uh, very much. Okay. So a fine, that, that's fair. But uh, David did bring this up and he'd heard it that the boy was representative of his repressed homosexuality mm. and that he was forcing that down. Um, Why? Why is that? Why did you read it that way? I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> I know I was thinking about it the other day and it made a little bit of sense. How exactly is complex, but I, I think it might be with the like artistry with which he views these female relationships hmm. that they're they're more of like conceptual rather than like physical and raw, so that maybe there might be something there. Um, I'm sure there's if there are other allusions to homosexuality other than him saying one of the demons is uh, he thinks is a homosexual. I mean, also uh, obviously this is not uh, specific to gayness in the real world, right. but. In terms of coding, there's the whole scene where they dress him up and put makeup on him and whatnot, sure. which in the 1960s Sweden is a way that you would code something as potentially uh, queer, um, although that is forced upon him. Yeah, well, you know what's interesting about that? It's uh, I, I kind of felt like it was like clown makeup, but it was yep. very feminine looking, and I think it was like purposely yes. feminine looking. Yeah. And there was something about him crying in a room full of people with his like eyeshadow dripping that, that felt feminine to me. I have um, two things on on that. One, I do want to answer your question about what I thought of the boy thing because I think I agree with Rob Mm. um, that it's a killing of his younger self because in the scene prior, he tells Alma about the story of him as a young boy crying in the closet, scared of the the monster that eats little kids' toes. And we've seen this so many times throughout the film and again, an argument for why I think it's Alma creating these characters. She hears that story. The boy shows up the next scene. Uh, same with Veronica. She hears the story about Veronica or she sees the painting and Veronica right. shows up later on as well. Um, but not until after she even realizes that they're there. 
so yes, in short, I agree with Rob that it is killing of his, his younger self and that the boy is Alma's imagination of, or manifestation of him as a younger boy. I like that a lot. I didn't necessarily interpret the murder to have happened recently. Mm, it is tricky. Time is, is very strange in this. Yeah, and it is a flashback. Um, I, I interpret that that happened potentially at the beginning of their expenditure on the island, but also it could have... It doesn't even have to have been on the island, even though it's framed that way. He doesn't even have to have been the age that he is presented as. I mean, it is clearly a highly metaphorical scene, so I interpret that that could have happened at any point in his entire totally. life. I think I, I think he mentions almost the time frame before he explains it, oh. but... For me, for me, I'm almost positive that it happened before they went on the retreat, and it might have been the reason for his downward spiral. Interesting. Kind of alluded to mm. that. Set. Now, there are two things that Devin said that I think are really interesting, and, and I guess I'll go with the the latter point of yours about her kind of manifesting of Veronica, and I I think there's a lot of evidence to support this reading of yours that. You could view the story as Johan went insane and ran off in the woods and potentially died. And this is her way of kind of like dealing with, with these manifestations through speaking of them as if they're a reality, his delusions. Which is actually very similar to like uh, Life of Pi. What? How it explains all the traumatic instances as oh fantastic, fantastical. And that's kind of what she's doing. Got it. Right? How he explains all these real world tragedies in terms of animals, right? And this time she explains them as in terms of ghosts. And I think that it, that is a, that is a very fair reading. Um, I, I don't think it. I think it's holistic. Uh, but the other point that I, I think you need to draw this comparison is when he tells that story of being in the closet. After he's let out of the closet, his father was like, "Take your pants down. I'm going to whip you." And he said, "How many?" He goes, "As many as I can take," mm -hmm. which is the first inclination that this idea of a value to his pain and a, and a deserving of his pain is from way back in his childhood. And that's that his artistic expression is this value of pain. I thought for a minute that you were going to say that the closet was representative. Of Me too. And I was like, no, no, no. Oh, no, I didn't read it that way. Um, I don't know maybe, if that I, phrase actually existed in the 60s or not. What did that phrase become? This is also Swedish. It could be super so. old. I, I don't know. <laughs> 60s Sweden, I don't know if I don't, they wouldn't have like, had that phrase. Right. This movie in homo, I don't know about this movie in homosexuality. If anything, maybe the doctor. Because at one point, the Johan does say, I, when he's presenting the drawings in the beginning, he does say, I think he may be a homosexual. I don't know who he's talking about in that moment. So I'm very curious. And he does present that. And I think that's why we are talking about it so much because it does. And if you interpret the ghosts as figments of. Uh, Johan himself, then the fact that there's a gay character in there would imply that he has some homosexual aspects. Of right, himself. and the fact that it is questioning as well. I don't, it's it's curious, but and then also the part that you guys were talking about the makeup at the end. I mean, just because it's feminine doesn't necessarily mean that it that it it is a homosexual you know interpretation. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. We keep forgetting that most of this movie is we we've quoted it so many times. It's them coming together as one. She mm -hmm. is female. Mm. So in the end, mm -hmm. is he becoming her and she's becoming him? Is he becoming her because he's putting on makeup and a gown? Maybe the homosexual read is that he is becoming attracted to men because she is. Oh. Mm. 
That was meant as a joke. Devin needs to watch Persona. We need to watch it with her. And uh, I think I think Persona is actually worthy of this podcast. I think it is frightening enough to not be considered strictly a horror film in the way this one is, but there is a lot of overlaps within the genre. Also, with this other film, I back up Persona is a horror film. Yeah, Through a Glass Darkly as well. Um, <laughs> actually, I'm, I both those films one. were inspired uh, Rose Glass for uh, Saint Maud. Isn't that weird? Isn't that yes. weird? Yeah, it's so weird that those were the films that inspired her, yet we were suggested this film. But what's interesting is this film is quoted as Bergman's one horror film. His one strict horror film is this one. That's why I've been wanting to watch it for so long. And I was not disappointed. I, I actually wish I got to watch it again before recording this podcast, having only seen it once. Same. I really wish I had. I, 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 was, I wanted to watch it again last night. I just didn't have time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's such a busy week. So uh, I think this is a really good point of comparison between the two films. And uh, David has been holding out. He, he, he's bottling it up, and we, we got to let it go before he starts manifesting some demons. <laughs> I mean, both of these movies, what, what was the last thing we were talking about? We were talking about homosexuality. homosexuality. I did mention the valuation of pain. Yeah. Uh, so you should get started on that one, because I think that's more you. Okay. <laughs> so so uh future rob scratched the last like two minutes um, <laughs> so i i think this is a good point of comparison between the two films is that both of them have this idea that there's a value to the pain we have whether it be artistic or theologically valuable and that it can't be wasted saint maude always says good pain can never be wasted which i think is such a cool line and she keeps repeating it in variations of it throughout the film and like i said johan borg even when he was a child, wanted to hold on to his pain from the closet in that he was self-deserving of it. The difference being that Maud vehemently believes that there's a divine valuation to her pain, whereas Johann Borg views it as futile. But that adds to his humiliation, which is part of his pain. So I think by him saying that, he really doesn't believe it. Have you guys seen you – you guys have both seen all of BoJack Horseman, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I bet you didn't expect that one to come up here. <laughs> did not. Um, no, but... Uh, <laughs> no, did not. I think it's fair. Yeah. There's an amazing episode in the last season. This will be minor spoilers. Mm-hmm. It's called, The episode is called Good Damage. Mm. And it's about Diane is uh, has been through a lot, and she is now trying to write her memoir about her abusive childhood. Mm. And she simply isn't able to. Mm. And I remember getting up this episode, I saw the word good damage in the title. I got so annoyed by it. I'm like, oh, how, how dare they suggest that? But then in the climax of the episode, she's talking to her boyfriend who's very concerned about her. She's like gone off her antidepressants in order to try to write this memoir and it's still not working. Now it's just coming out as a clustered mess and she's miserable as well. At the same time, she also had written like a page of something else that was not at all a memoir. It was light fluff and it was good. And he's like, why are you so obsessed with getting out this stuff about your childhood? And Diane says that if she can't write it, it wasn't good, damn it. And that, like, just shook me to my core. Yeah, yeah. I heard that, and I freaked out yeah. because I totally do that. That, that definitely <laughs> is, I, I think, the same uh, issue that St. Maud has. I, I think she can't conceive of this horrible traumatic event that happened to her unless it was ordained by God. Totally. And I, I think Johan as well. Yes, I think Johan as well, too. Um, definitely. Uh, Johan as well is more self-deprecating, I think, through it. And um, there's there's kind of this, like, wink of, like, like nihilism 
Whereas like Saint Maud yeah. is vehemently anti nihilistic. Everything needs meaning. And, and and religion is always saying things like this, particularly Christianity. It's always part of God's plan that these horrible things happen. And that's where people get stuck with their hands up in the air, like, what's the purpose of children dying in Africa or old people losing all their savings to predatory uh, <laughs> princes, medical services, and etc. My mother was raised Catholic, and she uh, left the church. She she never really liked it, but she left it completely and even switched to a public school right. because in high school she had two different friends die of cancer. Oh, my God. And she was just like, I'm, I'm over people telling me that uh, this is part of God's plan. Yeah, and, and it begs this question of what is good damage? Can good damage exist? And I heard a speaker, I can't think of his name, he did some TED Talks, but he, he talked about how, like, with depression and terrible things that happen to you, that you should accept it and you should love it, but that doesn't mean you have to be happy about it. You should be pissed off, you know, that there is a valuation to it because you still exist as you are now. Yeah. But it, it's not necessary. It's not a necessary development of what's happening now. It's not necessarily a good one. It's necessary in that in, in the grand scheme of cause and effect, you're led here and that every step you've taken has led you to this point. Like one of the batch, one of the groomsmen said last night as we were drinking martinis and then he dropped one. <laughs> every step I've taken has led me here. And then he dropped his martini on the ground. It's really funny. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. it's interesting. And I think how how that is seen in these movies. Um, I mean, well, in St. Maude, I think that's through Amanda. Amanda is obviously going through a lot and can't necessarily see the out, like a good outcome from it, obviously. And she's pushing away from everything that was good in her life. I mean, these these people that come and visit her, they're like, why are you keeping yourself out here? What are you doing? Why are you torturing yourself? Like she's so damaged and can't see the good of it either. But she does kind of seek to find it at some point. I think that Amanda is more like my mom and that she doesn't really want to hear about how this is all part of God's plan. She kind of goes along with it a bit, but she, she, she doesn't see any positive to come out of this. And she's kind of right. I mean... It, it it can be very it, it's the toxic positivity is something that's been brought up a lot in recent years that sometimes you just you need to be allowed to think things can suck sometimes like that happens and there's not always a good side to it that doesn't mean that you need to wallow in grief for the rest of your life but it's okay to be upset for sure it is um as long as you don't try to like become your husband yeah, or in his case, uh, delving so deeply into his damage that he completely unravels and has a psychotic break. So I think also both of these movies deal heavily with mental illness. And we've talked about mental illness a lot on this pod before. Uh, in Daniel Isn't Real and The Evil Within, we talked heavily about the trope that someone who is mentally ill is dangerous and uh, how that's kind of very inaccurate and uh here's a little anecdote uh the first time i watched saint Maud was right before we recorded that episode mm -hmm. and it was very fresh in my mind and it heavily influenced how i approached that episode mm -hmm. because this movie was my fucking breaking point for that trope mm -hmm. can you go into mm -hmm. that <laughs> uh i i you guys might disagree but to me i think this movie 
very, very, very much leans into the idea that because Saint Maud is dangerous, she that be, that because Maud is uh, mentally ill in some way, probably schizophrenic, but I don't want, but we don't really know. Uh, she is therefore dangerous and kills someone because of that. Mm. And I don't know how I feel about that. And the it the fact that it's not ambiguous, it makes it a precise point that no, she is ill. And yes, we still sympathize with her, but also we're meant to be afraid of her because she is sick. I My only pushback against that, although I think that's fair, is that it, it seems like it's trying to say something more about saintly figures rather than mentally ill patients in general. And that this is probably a driving force for the creation of a lot of these saints. That if you conceive of mental illnesses or voices in your head as divine signs from God, divine communication of some kind, which a lot of religions seem to have done, you know, like epileptic fits as messages from gods, uh, signs of prophets, things of that nature, then this is the modern day version. And almost like um, Midsummer, when they purposely uh, promoted inbreeding to have, a, you know, a strange child who they just ordained as their prophet. It's, it's similar to that idea of, of like directing divine communication through mental illness. Or from mental illness. Midsommar, Midsommar also makes the claim that a bipolar woman would kill her parents. Well, <laughs> just one bipolar woman. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't think it's fair just to be like, ah, oh, all blah, 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 you know. It's it's just a comparison thing about mental illnesses. Like, you, you just want to have more representation of people with mental illnesses who are nonviolent. Right. Rather than all of them who are yeah. violent. Because it, it seems like if you are violent at all, I would consider that kind of a mental defect mm -hmm. if you are violent towards people. So that is in, under the umbrella of mental illness if you're violent. Like hyperaggressive is a but mental illness. that's not illness. the illness we're discussing. The illness we're discussing right now is it's a psychosis. That would right. be the symptom of psychosis. It's so, yeah. we don't it's know so interesting because I think – I don't know. When I watched the movie, at no point did I say she's mentally ill. I, I, like, I, I just watched it as a woman really? who was like – grief, who was grieving, who was going through this – she was traumatized and she's, you know, leading her life after mm -hmm. this trauma and after this death and just, just like going through this grief. And Rob, you were saying earlier, all of this, of all the selfishness. And it really is like when you grieve, you grieve alone. And she was, mm -hmm. she's just wants to be there in her grief mm -hmm. for herself and herself only. And I know I'm piecemealing here, but also I see this as more of saying, Yes, she kills Amanda. Yes, I, I get it. She kills Amanda. That's really bad. I totally agree with that interpretation, David. Bad. She also lights herself on fire. <laughs> well, and that's ultimately what I was going to say is like, I think the message is more so that like, this is how you hurt yourself more so mm. than you hurt others. Mm. But it's equally as bad because I'm also in that interpretation kind of ignoring the fact that she killed Amanda. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think it's both. But I also think it speaks to the need for like support systems. Uh, yes. Which is a major point of differentiation from uh, Hour of the Wolf in that the support system itself is part of the manifestation of the delusion, if you think of it that, or the manifestation of the ghost, whatever. Right. Whereas this one, her lack of a support system probably influenced the delusion. And Joy was a great character. Like, seeing Joy come in and trying to be that support system, but also not being successful at it, in less of a way of Maud pushing her away, but also in Joy being like, I don't know what the fuck to do in this situation. Like, how do I... I'm trying, but at the same time, like, 
you gotta give me something else here. I think that just as much as Maud is trying to save Amanda, you could also interpret that Amanda is trying to save Maud. Maybe not so actively, but she talks to her very frankly. She tells her, this is a problem that you have. And uh, no, there is, you're not talking to God. That's not what's happening. Um, when, right before she fires her, she, I mean, she completely humiliates her. But then she also says, no, you, you need to loosen up. Like, allow yourself to have fun. It's okay to right. have fun. And she said this in a completely terrible way that obviously would never get through to her and is completely unempathetic, but I think you can interpret it that Amanda's also trying to kind of get Maude to see her side of mm. things and failing in that. Definitely tough love. Definitely tough love. And you can compare both movies because also Alma is... I mean, Alma is definitely trying to save Johan. If you read Johan as someone... as the mentally ill party, or both of them as, or whatever. Uh, obviously, Howard Wolf is a lot more metaphorical. Um, but Alma is also trying to save Johan and pull him back from his mental illness mm. and kind of just completely fails. Yeah, uh, I agree. I, I think I think Alma is trying to help Johan and is unsuccessful. Um Again, like, like that, that holistic quality of like marriage and how his problems become her problems and then through the unity they become <laughs> kind of bigger yes. problems. Right. Really. But it, not to ignore her either. Like she is also right. struggling. She is also not 100% okay. Yes, very much. And her struggles are also – he's taking them on as well. It's not just her taking on his and him struggling as well. This is all my you're talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. All right. And I think all of this gets into a central idea in both movies that are we able to save each other? Mm. Well, if you don't want to be saved. I mean, yeah, it's kind mm. of both characters are, are very similar. I think Johann Borg and St. Maud in that they are vehement about they kind of like ferociously hold on to their isolated grief and trauma. And their pain, and they really they think it will lose its value if other people help them. Yeah, that there's something about this individualistic struggle that's that's worth more in its like purity, right? And, and I and I think I, I think in uh, Hour of the Wolf is trying to say something about art with that. Obviously, with Saint Maud, I I think it's a lot more clear in its leanings. It, it thinks that's bad. It, it thinks people need support systems. Right. That, that's why that's why I don't view anything with St. Maud particularly problematic. I, I don't want to say that it's problematic. I think that this is a trope that I have a lot of issues with. There have been a lot of fantastic movies that use this trope, and I will be very happy if none of them ever do again. That's how I'll put it. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I, I, think, I think it's fair that it's overdone, maybe, but uh, there's a lot of really good movies about people losing their minds in isolation. And if you are struggling with mental illness yourself, then there are a lot of resources that you can look that that we will link to in the description. Yeah, maybe maybe don't look towards William Blake. Just <laughs> my thoughts. No, Probably not. Yeah, no, my thoughts. Probably not. So now it's time for my favorite part of the show, which is the bone review section, where we rate each film on a one through four bone rating system with half bones in between. Starting us off this week is Devin Shepard. Okay, so starting with Saint Maud. Um. I'm so mad that it took me this long to watch this movie because it's goddamn beautiful. Literally goddamn beautiful. Um, 
I loved everything about it. I really don't have many issues with it. Um, I thought it was gorgeous, uh, both in the cinematography, the production design, the performances, the direction. The There are so many like refreshing nuances on, I don't want to call this a possession movie, but it kind of like is on religious horror. I think it, it had a lot of new perspectives that I loved. Um, so I'm going to give it four bones. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. It's probably not going to huh? be this high, like when we're done talking about it. But you know, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm so glad you loved it. I I did like this wow. movie too. Yeah. yeah, I liked it a lot. Um, Hour of the Wolf, or how do you say it in the actual original title? I don't know. I really liked this movie. I haven't watched a Bergman film since film school, uh, and I forgot like how much <laughs> I loved Bergman's work. Um, <laughs> I, I it, it took me a while to get into it at first, uh, but then once like I started understanding what was happening, and once it got to like these scenes that I just I couldn't look away. Also, oh my god, the actress um, Olman who plays Alma, uh, outstanding. And I know she's in Persona, and that's why I'm like sold that I need to go see mm -hmm. Persona right now because I loved her performance. Um, mm -hmm. It was slow at first. Things there were some things that bothered it bothered me about it, um, but ultimately I did love it. So I'm gonna have to give it three bones. David, what about you? Uh, Saint Maud. Um, I mean, we've been over some of it already. I think this movie is really interesting, and it has a lot of stuff to say that I think is really interesting. And I also think that Morphid Clark is uh, fucking brilliant and fantastic and a wonderful actor who needs so much more work. I mean, she, she gives a fucking Oscar-worthy performance in this movie. She is fantastic. And I don't even think the character is written that well. I just think she's that good. Uh, <laughs> I've gone over a lot of my issues with this. It really broke me on that trope. And it also really broke me on A24. That I feel like this movie... It looks really good. But it also looks like a mashup of every other A24 film. <laughs> and I'm just, I'm just over it. Even watching it again now, like, I was just more frustrated and annoyed with the movie than anything else. I, I, I think it's great, but I have a lot of problems with it. Uh, I will give it two bones. Wow. Wow. Hour of the Wolf. On, when I rewatch this movie, it's going to swing in either direction because I have no idea. It's so much, and I wish I could have watched it again before coming to talk about it here. Uh, but I really like it. I think it has a lot of interesting imagery, and I mean, Bergman, he's Bergman. <laughs> I I don't think I've watched any of his movies since film school either. I might have rewatched Wild Strawberries at some point, but his work is fantastic. Um, I don't, Persona's his best movie that I've seen. I'll give this one two and a half bones. That's it. Okay. Uh, wow. So it's big spread on the bone reviews this week. Uh, starting with St. Maud, I, I did really like St. Maud. And I felt like the direct direction was very specific and kind of like excellent. Um, I'm really looking forward to watching Rose Glass's next film. I hope I hope it's a horror film. Um, and I, I really like the ideas of the movie, uh, the acting, almost everything. There was just it's too straightforward. There's there's no turns and and nothing is surprising. And I think that kind of took away from the suspense a little bit. Um, for instance, the scene when she's in the bar, that was less anxiety-inducing than I think it should have been for me. 
because I'm kind of a pussy. So, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> uh, I, I did really like it, though. So, I, I'm very on the fence between two and a half and three bones. But I, I think I'm going to have to give it two and a half bones. I do think it's good. I, I don't... I, fuck, it is very good. Still two and a half bones. I got to stay consistent. It's very... <laughs> it, it is... It's on the cusp of a three bone movie. I just... I knew what was going to happen at the end. And nothing really surprised me at all. It was just, it was just a cool story, though. It was very cool. Um, Hour of the Wolf, I mean, like, you know, Berkey Man's Birdman. He's awesome. Very interesting. It's most of the stuff I like. I wish I'd watched a much better quality version of it. And I, I think I might have to do that on a good TV. I need a new TV. My TV's terrible. I agree. It's, it's definitely not his best work. Um, it, the ending is a fever dream. And it's It's wild so strange and it deals with such interesting concepts particularly this idea of the value of pain which St. Maud does as well so I'm going to give it three bones I think Hour of the Wolf is very good it is not Bergman's best film it might be his only real horror film yeah so three bones for me that is it for us this week I'm going to go to bed now and nurse this hangover before my head splits in half (laughs) (laughs) until next time my horror hounds Goodbye. Never waste your pain.